Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton.gmail.com or have left in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for inviting me into your home today. Uh, we have some great questions and answers to get into. I wanted to first plug the podcast this week. The Sensibly Speaking podcast uh, this week is part one of a two-part uh, show that I am doing with Jen Kiaba about her story as a Mooney growing up in the Unification Church. And if you think the Moonies, like the Hare Krishnas, are some group that disappeared in the 70s and aren't around anymore, I have very, very bad news for you. Uh, that Because that is not the case at all. Even after the passing of Sun Myung Moon, uh, that uh, heritage continues, that legacy can, follows with his family, and it is a legacy of abuse and uh, really, really, really destructive uh, child abuse and uh, human trafficking and things like that. And Jen goes into real detail about her life experiences with that. And at the same time, because she's a student on the psychology of course control program that I have completed, she and I get to talk about this from that perspective and knowledge base. And so we really get to get into the details of what is going on with their recruitment, their retention, with her growing up in that group, and all of that nonsense. It is a far, far, far more destructive uh, group than I ever had any idea about. Um, and this is, of course, the same group that Steve Hassan had been involved with all the way back in the 70s. All right, so I encourage you to check that podcast out if that is something that is of interest to you. And her story is quite interesting. Um, and like I said, this is part one. Part two will drop next week. All right, so let's get on with your questions. Oscar Q. Zilch, could you talk a bit about Hubbard's Code of Honor? Is it emphasized much in Scientology? On the surface, the Code of Honor appears to be a well-crafted set of attractive principles. But when you think them through, the Code of Honor seems to direct followers to fearlessly abuse others who get in the way of a quote-unquote just cause, i.e. Scientology. Anyone who feels trapped and hurt in this process is, in essence, weak, because they aren't living up to idealized version of an individual who isn't damaged by abuse and is always in control of their destinies. Absolutely, Oscar. This is a really great question, and I, I think this might have come up at some point in the past, but rarely have I got a chance to talk about this, and so I haven't even looked at the Code of Honor in Scientology in quite a few years. So it's interesting today to go back over it and look at it kind of from a fresh perspective and see just how uh, kind of silly it is. And there, and there are a couple of reasons why I'll use the word silly here. The Code of Honor, I can't necessarily go over and read every point of this code. You can look it up. It's on the Scientology.org website or in various places around on the internet. It is a code that Hubbard talked about and lectured on in 1954. It's got 15 points. And um, he basically introduced this as a set of uh, principles that a person could follow, which were sort of in the spirit or uh, communicated as though it were in the spirit of, of, of a, of a um, being like a knight, you know, like it was a sort of a, something you would do because you were ethical and honorable and moral and, you know, and all of this. And so you were going to live a just life. And so this code of honor is the, or, you know, is sort of representing the principles that one would follow if one wished to lead this life, according to at least 
L. Ron Hubbard's estimation of what is moral. And if you know about L. Ron Hubbard's personal life, then you know that he really treated morals and ethics as options, as things that were used to fool other people into compliance so that he could take advantage of them. That was Hubbard's view of ethics and morals, uh, at least certainly in a practical, very pragmatic sense, so, you know, whether he you know, whether he could be believed when he talked about the greatest good in utilitarian ethics and, you know, and, and trying to survive into infinity and expand and grow and all of this, it's all rather silly um, because he, you know, none of his principles and none of his actual life actions indicate that he followed any of that. Uh, so, you know, he, for example, he was a serial philanderer. Uh, he cheated on every woman he was ever with. He uh, you know, was a was a pathological liar. He he could not stop himself from lying about every aspect of his life. Uh, so you know, it's it's a little bit silly for somebody of that low character to be forwarding a code of honor that he created himself, or at least it took credit for. I really wonder if this was his own invention. As far as the points go, I, let me let me give you a couple critiques of this. Many, many of the points, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine of the 15 points start with the word never, as in never desert a comrade in need, in danger, or in trouble. That's the first point. Or two, never withdraw allegiance once granted. You know, these kind of things, these nevers, automatically that's off because as you guys know, I am very, very much about context. Context is what determines value. And uh, you cannot ever have any rule that I'm aware of that could not be violated in um, or broken uh, for good reason given certain contexts, right? You change up the circumstances or the situation and suddenly murder isn't murder, right? The taking of a human life, for example, could be murder in a certain context. It could be completely justified in another context. Same act, different value, depending on the circumstances, right? Obvious point. So when somebody says never, that means there are no circumstances under which this rule does not apply. And if you want to live a rigid life where you make mistakes and you apply rules and uh, ethics in a very literal, dumbed-down sort of uh zombie-like state, you go right ahead. But that's not the ethics or morals that I subscribe to anymore. <laughs> and this is one of the big reasons why is because I've kind of, you know, graduated out of this idea that there's always one right way to do a thing. And Hubbard was very, very keen on the idea that there was only one right way to do lots and lots of things. And he was the one who could determine what that one right way was. So, okay, now, so that's my first complaint with this, is nine of these are automatically, like, for the birds, simply because of that never point. But we can go even deeper and more into this. Um, you know, we hear, we have here, never withdraw allegiance once granted. That's point number two of this code. Never withdraw allegiance once granted. Well, that's fascinating and great for cult leaders. They love stuff like that. But... You know, if you change your mind, which you are have the right to do at any time about anything, that's your right as a human being. You change your mind, you get to withdraw your allegiance anytime you want. You are not stuck or fixed or 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 trapped 
in any relationship you have, or if you are, then you should really reconsider the terms of that relationship because you shouldn't be trapped in a relationship. Now, of course, familial relationships carry blood with that, but here we're talking about allegiance, and allegiance is a very different thing from blood ties. You know, families are broken all over the place, right? Because people withdraw allegiance to, you know, family based on blood. So, you know, so blood alone is not strong enough. You have to, you know, give of yourself. You have to make that emotional commitment. And you can withdraw that anytime. If your father, mother, grandfathers, kids, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, if any of these people are abusive to you or are sort of evil or predatory toward you, then you have every right to withdraw allegiance from them and get the hell away from them. Uh, so, you know, but if you follow the code of honor, then you can't ever do that. And you have to stick with them no matter what through thick and thin, you know, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. You don't have to do that. You know, you don't know anybody yourself. Uh, and when you think that you do, well, that's, that's somebody convincing you that, you know, it's a little bit of slavery going on there. You know, uh, in a way. So anyway, so that's a, that's a point right there that I definitely have a problem with. Um, you know, as far as um, never disparage yourself or minimize your strength or power, fair enough. Yet at the same time, that's just aching for the, you know, the flip side, which is that you overestimate yourself or, uh, you know, your strength or power and start asserting yourself in inappropriate or even abusive ways. So, you know, so you got to draw lines in the sand here on this stuff. And when you never disparage yourself, well, if you screw up, you absolutely should disparage yourself and pick yourself right back up, figure out what you did wrong and move on and, and, and not repeat that mistake, right? That's the whole process of learning. And if you don't disparage yourself a little bit along the way, then you're never going to learn a damn thing. <laughs> So, you know, again, I, you know, I can't agree with that. Uh, you know, never need praise, approval, or sympathy. What, are you not human? There is no, there is not one human being in the world who does not need praise, approval, or sympathy from time to time. Not one. And I mean, I guess I could say unless they're a sociopath or something, but even then, even then, I mean, arguably narcissists are the ones who need it more than anybody else. Uh, in terms of emotional needs, right? When we talk about emotional needs. So this idea of never needing praise, approval, or sympathy, we do need it. It is an emotional need we have. We must connect with other people. We must get their approval or we are social outcasts and pariahs by definition. And that is a very uncomfortable place to be because that goes in the direction of solitary confinement and shunning and disconnection and being relegated and kicked out of the group. And nobody wants to ever, ever, ever be that. Uh, that is just it, it completely opposite to every instinct we have and how we are literally built. So, uh, so it's a nice idea to think that you can stand and bear your breast to the world and I don't need anybody's approval. Yeah, good luck getting anywhere in life without somebody approving of what you're trying to do. You know, good luck getting through the, the, the pitfalls of life without a little bit of sympathy from somebody from time to time. I mean, come on, you know, this is just unreal with this crap, right? Um, you know, this never compromise with your own reality is a, is a clear-cut excuse. This is point number six of the code. Is a, is a clear-cut justification for never being wrong, 
never being willing to change your mind. I am not going to compromise with my reality. And this, by the way, comes up in Scientology all the damn time, right? Well, I don't want to violate your integrity or I don't want to, I'm not going to violate my integrity. I'm not going to violate my reality by changing my mind about something you're asserting here, which is, of course, the very opposite of critical thinking because Humility and the willingness to change your mind is at the forefront of good critical thinking. Um, you know, it's not to say you're a pushover, and it's not to say that you have to change your mind when presented with information that conflicts with what you already know. Critical thinking is all about analyzing that information so you can come to the best possible decisions for yourself and your circumstances. And those aren't always, you don't always come to the same conclusions with the same data that somebody else will. And that very well could be because for you and your circumstances, the answer is A. And for this other person, when the answer is A, they suffer. They, they That's a disadvantage for them. So they don't want that. And they'll accuse you of not being a good critical thinker or of not, think, not thinking it through or not being willing to change your mind. So it goes both ways here. And it's a tricky, you know, complicated, con, again, context-specific thing, right? But when you have this idea that I'm never going to compromise with my reality, believe me when I tell you that in Scientology, how that gets interpreted and acted on 100% of the time is that people will just be obstinate and they'll basically just, you know, reduce themselves down to being complete jerks. And, uh, and that's par for the course for Scientologists. And that's one of the reasons why. So I could go on with some of these other points, but I think you get the idea here. Um, you know, some of these are, um, are just silly and some of them are straight up impossible. Um, don't desire to be liked or admired. Yeah. Again, good luck, right? It's just not, it, it, it these are just not realistic expectations for human beings to have, and they're not healthy. And that's, that's more of where I'm, I, I protest this stuff is it's not just unrealistic. It's when you put people into a headspace where they're like, well, I'm, I don't need anybody to like me. I don't need anybody to admire me. Uh, okay. I, I, I hope you don't, you know, I, I hope it's cool with you that you never have another friend ever. <laughs> I mean, you know, what is this, right? It's, it's, of course you desire that. It's a basic human emotional need. So to try to deny that is to actually set up for yourself. Here's, here's, here's psychologically why this is rough and why this is bad is because you set up for yourself an ideal or a principle or a rule that is actually in direct conflict with your basic impulses as a human being. And when you do that, uh, you better really be clear on what you're doing because you're going to set yourself up with a double bind. And this is going to be a crazy making thing. Because you're going to have an intention to uh, to do a thing or to feel a thing or to want a thing simply because you're human. It, it's as natural as needing to eat or needing to sleep. It's it's that basic, right, is having emotional needs, attachment, having relationships, things like that. And when you deny that, you are actually entering a, a level of, of lie, of, of falsehood to yourself as to what you can achieve. But this this impossible standard will sit there and slap you upside the face, right? Because you're you're doing that to yourself because of this thing. Or if somebody else is enforcing it on you, then they're slapping you in the face every time you violate it, right? And that's that becomes its own level of abuse. And it's an abuse because you can't help your nature. And uh, and we, you know, you can certainly apply a little discipline to your life. 
so that you control your urges. I'm, don't, don't get me wrong and think that, you know, we're all just impulsive creatures. I'm not going in that direction. I'm just trying to point out that things like, you know, wanting to have human relationships and connection is a perfectly natural thing to want. And when you, you know, adopt a code of honor that says, well, I'm going to be above all of that. No, you're not. And that's that's what I'm trying to point out, right? I'm not trying to excuse bad behavior. So anyway, I think I think this is all pretty clear, I, I hope. And I hope this answer was, uh, you know, was interesting and, and informative in some fashion. Uh, boy, it sure was interesting going back over this again. There you go. Helen McCarthy. I was bored enough to listen to Ron Hubbard's Congresses. I can tell by his tone of voice when he's telling one of his many tall tales. I listened to a tale he tells about lending someone deemed a criminal a pair of boots before he moved across to the other side of the country. Lo and behold, this man turned up at his new address to return the boots, prompting Ron to ask how he got there. The man had stolen a car to travel all that way all to return Ron's boots. The audience chuckled at this criminal stupidity at committing a bigger crime in an attempt to be honest by returning Ron's boots, thus making him stupid as well as criminal. It was such an obviously tall tale and had me thinking, do Scientologists actually believe these tales or do you think deep down he is lying? Just like the OT3 story, it's so obvious, not just even by the silly stories, it's a giveaway by his tone of voice also. Okay, Helen, well... um. I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm rubbed a little bit the wrong way by this, you know, well, I can just tell by his tone of voice that he's lying thing. Cause I don't, I don't necessarily think that's a very reliable way of telling whether somebody is consistently lying or not, unless you know them very, very, very well. Um, but of course, you know, you listen to enough of Hubbard and you certainly do learn an awful lot about him and his personality and his take on things. And of course, you're absolutely right that you can tell when he goes off onto his tangents and his tones do change, and and fair enough, you know. So I just I just always kind of uh, well, I can always tell by the tone of his voice. I'm always like, mm, can you really? But skip my skepticism aside, okay. Um, I am uh, I will say this, okay. No Scientologist that I'm ever aware of in any situation ever thinks L. Ron Hubbard is lying. Um, L. Ron Hubbard will tell, uh, however, telling allegories, telling metaphors, giving metaphors, um, you know, perhaps exaggerating stories for effect is how we would think about it as Scientologists, okay? So it's not like we didn't get that sometimes he was bending the truth a little bit, but we never, ever, ever thought about it as, oh, he's lying now. Because lying, of course, implies, you know, some kind of nefarious or deceitful purpose. And uh, we never imagined that L. Ron Hubbard had any kind of nefarious or deceitful purposes when it came to us, us Scientologists, and trying to impart this, you know, these nuggets of wisdom that he was giving us. So, um, so no, we never, ever thought about, uh, thought about it that way. Um, yeah, anyway, that's what I can say about that. I hope that helps. Matt Kordelski, once a year, I see an overwhelming amount of advertising for something called the Shen Yun Dance Troupe. Billboards, newspaper ads, TV, I can't click on YouTube without getting ads to go see the Shen Yun Chinese Dance Show. I'm not into dance, so I've never been to it. But I always assumed it must be a huge ticket seller to justify the overwhelming amount of advertising they buy every year. 
I sort of thought maybe it was something being paid for by the Chinese government, but oh, did I have that backwards. This year, their ads proclaimed how beautiful China was before communism. I googled Shen Yun, and of course, the first few hits were Shen Yun's official websites. But the next few websites after that were allegedly third-party sites simply commenting on Shen Yun were clearly made by Shen Yun itself. They had videos with the same voiceover actor, the same music and graphics, etc., just like Scientology did after HBO played Prison of Belief, websites and videos that at first glance you might mistake for being official HBO productions. Then deep down the list was web info that Shen Yun was really a recruitment tool for the Chinese religious group Falun Gong, and that if you go to a show, it's clearly a recruitment event, not a dance show. Have you heard anything about Falun Gong, and do you think it qualifies as a cult? Uh, it doesn't seem like a violent cult, but it does sound like a high-control group. Hey, Matt, thanks for this question. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, sort of seeing the whole Shen Yun thing and the Falun Gong thing from a distance. It's not something I've dived deep into, but I've spoken with other people in the ex-cult, cult treatment, cult intervention world who are familiar with it. And they have assured me in no uncertain terms that Falun Gong is absolutely a destructive cult in the vein of a high control group. And this brings to mind, um, I forgot the name of it, but this brings to mind some stuff that we covered in our program where you have a situation of a cult versus cult, right? Because in the, in China, you have this uh, CCP, this this Communist Party, and it's the leading ruling body, and it's, and it's very cult-like, and there's a lot of totalitarian stuff going on there. And um, China's a great, big, huge place. It's very hard to call all of China a great, big cult. I don't really think about it that way. It's not the same as North Korea. It's way too big, for one. North Korea's significantly smaller, and that does matter, and, um, uh, and other factors, right? However, the government and what the government does there and how they do it there and the social controls that are in place and the framework of coercive control that sort of lays over that society is certainly rather totalist. And so, uh, so, you, so you can use this language to discuss the CCP and its rulings over you know, China in, a, in, in the cult language, in the cult paradigm, and, and get away with it. It makes sense, right? It's a sensible way to talk about it. Um, as long as you're clear that it's not the same thing as like a Scientology, which is just a money-making scam. The CCP is not a money-making scam. It's a different thing, right? It's kind of a different nature. But the tools that are used and the framework that's used and the attitude of the leadership toward the, the lower members and, and how they're dealt with and all of that, that's all about coercive control and about, uh, you know, a cult-like framework. So, so that's why, you know, that's, that's, that's the CCP. But interestingly, like in uh, Iran, when um, the Ayatollah took over and uh, threw the Shah out, there was a counter group to that, which itself was a destructive cult, high control group. You know, the membership couldn't have kids, couldn't really be married, had to go all in, you know, for the revolutionary cause. It was a very extreme revolutionary cult. Uh, but it was still had all the trappings of a destructive cult fighting what we would think of as the good fight against the Ayatollah Khomeini and, and the ruling um, uh, theocracy of Iran. And as I understand it, that fight is still going on to one degree or another. I don't know that that group, again, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it right now, but, but that group um, 
was absolutely a cult fighting a cult. And here in China, you have this Falun Gong uh, fighting against the Communist Party. And itself, the Falun Gong itself is a high control group. Apparently, it uses high control group methods and totalistic uh, thought reform methods in order to control its membership and push back and fight against you know, the Chinese government. And this uh, whole Shen Yun dance thing is one of its sort of PR arms that goes out and does money raising and recruits people and stuff like that. And that's really about all I know about it. I'm really not well steeped into the specifics of it or, or how they do what they do. And this is definitely an area that I do want to learn more about in the future. I just haven't had the time to dig into this at all. And it's a very, as, as you can tell from the way I did describe China and the and the situation there, it's complicated. There's a you know not, and when I do talk about that area and talk about what goes on there, I want to be accurate um, because it's important and because it's there's a lot of people involved in that. So I think accuracy on that is is you know I, I want to do it right. So that's really all I can kind of say about it at this point. Um, but yeah, I would not ever go to a Shenyun show or give them money or any of my time or energy because. It's you know they're they're uh, they're not a good group of people. <laughs> That's what I can say about that. John, can you describe how expenses are handled in the Sea Org? Do Sea Orgers travel with corporate Scientology credit cards? Who issues those cards? Which bank and which processing network? Amex, Visa, Mastercard. How do Sea Org missionaries travel? Must they stay at the cheapest possible hotels? Must they bunk in the same hotel rooms? I assume they always travel economy class, but do higher ranks get to ride up front? What is per diem allowance? How are expense audits handled with an e-meter? I've always wondered about this aspect of CERC policies, hoping you can shed some light. All right, John. Well, I can't give you a complete answer to all your questions. You're really nailing. I mean, you're kind of, this is very broad here. You're asking a lot of details about a lot of stuff, but let me do the best I can to cover this in this format and give you some, give you some good data. Um, Basically, no, I, I, there aren't corporate cards. Nobody's getting corporate credit cards, so we can get that out of the way right away. When you go out as a missionary, uh, it's on you. You, it's not. Sorry, I don't mean that um, that that you're expected to pay for everything. However, your bank account or your credit card will be used um, to front for things or to get you there, stuff like that. Airplane tickets and stuff can generally be purchased through the management unit before you go. That's just, you know, that's just something they can do on the phone. But individual expenses, money, miscellaneous items, toiletries, stuff like that, um, you know, that's going to be stuff that's supposed to be paid for out of the expense sum that you get. But guess what? You get about 20 bucks a day. So you're per diem. <laughs> 20 bucks. Uh, that was the daily expenditure amount that we got um, when I was going out on mission. So you were expected to have three meals a day, deal with any other miscellaneous expenses, 20 bucks. That's what you get per person is basically how that kind of works out. And sometimes less. Uh, sometimes like if it's two people, you might get $30 a day. So it's 15 between the two of you. And you would, of course, with, you know, only 30 bucks to eat uh, three meals, et cetera, per day, you end up going to the grocery store and figuring out how to, you know, get some storage at the mission site where you're located which is probably going to be your hotel or because of the fact that you're going to be in the org or on the location where you're at a, on, on a mission. When you go out on a project or a mission, you're going somewhere, and generally that's an org. Um, and so you're going to be in the org all day and night. So you're going to only be going back to the hotel at night 
late at night to sleep. And that's it. And then you go get up in the morning and back to the org or to the mission site, uh, wherever that is, which is probably not going to be your hotel room. So you're not going to be spending a lot of time there. You're not going to be doing room service. You're not going to be uh, doing movies or even you're not even really supposed to be watching TV. And yes, it is same sex bunking in the same room. So the women will stay in a one room, men will stay in another. They never co-ed unless they're mar a married couple. Um, but it's pretty rare that a married couple gets sent out on a mission together. So generally it's guys in one room, women in another room, and, um, and they, will, they will bunk it up. Um, and I have seen, um, you know, additional beds brought in, um, you know, foldable beds, stuff like that, in order to stick four, five, uh, six people into a hotel room uh, in order to save on expenses. I, I definitely, hell, I saw 10 people in a hotel room once. So, um, so that happens. Let's see. Uh, yeah, they always, they always do a travel economy class. Uh, generally, Sea Org missionaries travel by plane if they're going some long distance, but sometimes they'll rent a car and uh, drive where they need to go. Uh, generally do have car rental, uh, and that's paid for, right? The money tends to be uh, sent to them through their bank account, through the individual's bank account. So when I was out on mission, um, if money was being transferred to me at the end of the week, then it would go, it would be deposited into my account. Um, let's see. Okay. Now in terms of expense audits, the way this is dealt with is you save every receipt you get everything and you get receipts for everything. Because if you expect to have that, not pay for that yourself, you're going to have to produce a valid receipt for every expenditure that you make that you're claiming is covered by the mission expenses. So if you get a taxi ride, better get a receipt. And now that's pretty easy with Uber these days, but back in the day, you had to get a receipt from the taxi driver, right? Um, every meal, every expense, grocery store, you know, uh, stopping and picking up a candy bar, better get a receipt. And of course, for candy bars, they're not going to cover it. Uh, the expenses are checked and they are uh, kind of audited in that way. And you are, and if you've been wasting org funds, right, mission funds, that's a big deal. You're going to get in a lot of trouble for that. Um, a lot of trouble. You do not ever mess with the money in Scientology. You know, these things, the Moonies, the Scientologists, these people that are just operating scams with religious cloaking and all this nonsense to fool people, that's, uh, the money is always, in these groups, one of the ways you can tell what's going on is the money is always worth more than even your life. I mean, they don't care, you know, it just doesn't matter. You are expendable, the money's not. That's how it is in uh, in a lot of these groups. So um, so you have to have the receipts. And what you do is when you get is when you present your accounting at the end of the mission is when that's generally done. Although you can do it midstream if you're on a long mission. Most missions are only supposed to be a few days, a week or two. Long extended missions you might have to turn in paperwork on a more regular basis. But generally speaking, at the end of the mission, you come back, you got a big pile of receipts, you sort them all by day. And then you tape them to a piece of paper uh, per day. So every day is accounted for. And there's an item by item um, listing of each expenditure. And that is a cover sheet that gets put on. So basically you make a little spreadsheet and you put all your expenses on it by day. And then you have a receipt to show for that. You total it all up. You show how much money you were given. 
and then you either went over or under and if you went and if you had money left over based on your accounting that money is itself uh returned in an envelope uh as part of that accounting so the accounting should be should zero zero itself out very easily very a to b very simple if you can add and subtract you can do missionary accounting. Uh, Hubbard tried to make it a very, very simple system. And um, as far as the uh, expense audits, are, how are they handled with an e-meter? Yes, you do get a security check when you come back from a mission. It is called your return from mission sec check. It's a standard action every missionary is supposed to get. And uh, questions about finance are definitely on there. So if you've been spendy or... Uh, you know, a little uh, liberal with that money, then it's supposed to come up in the sec check. Uh, the meter should respond, in other words, is what they expect will happen. Although, of course, that doesn't always happen, but it's supposed to, and you're supposed to cough up and confess your sins and and uh, and, and account for all the money that way. So that's the, that's the, yeah, that's kind of the summary answer on that. Um, and that's, yeah, I think I covered all those questions, actually. So there you go. Martin Cooper. I'm fairly familiar with the way the meter itself works. However, one concept which I don't understand is a floating needle. I can understand how minuscule beads of sweat could affect the reading or unconscious flinching to certain lines of question could cause inflections to the needle. However, I was just wondering about what was happening physically slash uh, physiologically with the person to cause a floating needle. I've heard John Atak mention it was easy to make the needle float, but I'm not sure how this works either. I asked it on stream and a member of your audience replied you could cause the needle float by thinking happy thoughts, but just wondering if that's true and how that translates to the e-meter. Hey, Martin, thank you for this. I have mentioned before, and this is still a little bit of an open question for me, honestly, but it's something I've given a lot of thought to over the years as part of this meter thing. And... Um, Basically, the way I've kind of got it figured is that it has to do the, the floating needle is a is a response or a recognition of a kind of euphoric state. So the way I figure it, uh, you know, I've mentioned before that the needle is responding to or measuring skin resistance into electric flow going over the the skin. So what's going to affect that? that resistance and how do you get a floating needle is is a rhythmic sweep of the dial at a slow even pace of the needle back and forth now very rarely does it sit there and do this like i'm doing it right now with my finger back and forth like this it just goes on and on usually it's just a couple swings and then it's over and then the needle will just idle but it's not floating Idle and floating are kind of two different things. A floating needle has to be a rhythmic sweep of the dial. It's got to go back and forth. So what would cause such a thing? Well, a relaxed state and a little bit of euphoria, right, which would bring that relaxation somehow translates in the electrical field to this rhythmic back and forth. And I I can't really tell you exactly precisely what is causing that. I just can tell you that physiologically, I think it has to do with um, your sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system and how it is, you know, uh, relating to the skin. And that's, I know, a bit of a, you know, uh, you know toss there right <laughs> but uh that's my answer to the question right now it's a little bit weird i wish there was more science on this but there really is very little 
Uh, and that's one of the problems with this is because the whole idea of galvanic skin response in use in psychology and psychiatry was basically abandoned quite a while ago as a legitimate exercise because it's so goddamn random, right? What's going on with your skin resistance is a, is a very random thing. And, uh, and so the idea that you're going to tie specific responses to specific mental phenomena is a real stretch. I mean, I got to say right away, that alone is quite a bold claim to make to say, well, every time the meter does this, that means that the person is concentrated on some, you know, emotionally charged incident. That does, that's not what that means at all. Right? There's all kinds of ways to interpret what an e-meter or what a needle on a galvanic skin response meter is doing. So uh, to immediately tie it to a mental phenomenon and say, well, that's what's causing it. Uh, really? You know? And so, so that's why it's not easy to answer these questions with certainty. But I can tell you what it's not doing. And of course, what it's not doing is measuring sheets of energy created by your thetan and your mind that are uh, somehow impeding the electrical field of your body. We know, we, we can certainly say what it's not doing, even if we can't necessarily nail down precisely what it is doing. And uh, in this case, that's, it's sort of that kind of a scenario with the e-meter. Uh, so yeah, so that's, I don't know, that's basically what I can say about that at this time. And I will obviously, uh, you know, be doing more uh, thinking and uh, consulting on this before I give you my final sort of take on this whole thing with the with the metering video. Michael Yoder. I was listening to an old broadcast talking about Aldous Huxley, and there was an interesting part about Brave New World that seemed to speak to the Church of Scientology and other cults. It talked about the purpose of babies in a caste system. From mvorganizing.org, the Delta babies, especially lower caste, needed to be conditioned to hate books and roses so that they do not get diverted by love or knowledge as they grow up. They were conditioned to hate flowers, to decode their love of nature, and to hate books to avoid wasting time. Interested in your thoughts about how this kind of control exists in the Church of Scientology and other high-control groups, do you think LRH followed Huxley? All right, well, thank you for this. And um, this is actually interesting. Uh, Hubbard did, of course, refer to Huxley uh, a couple times and referred to Brave New World. Uh, Soma, I think, was the name of the drug in Brave New World. And uh, Hubbard's term for a physical pain or discomfort was a somatic. Uh, you know, so I, I, I'm not saying he got that from Huxley. It's just the same, same with the wordage there. The idea of conditioning as a psychological uh, practice was very, very popular back when these guys were writing in the 50s. This was the, the sort of, uh, I don't know what the term would be, but uh, knee plus ultra, the sort of ultimate, you know, where research of what psychology was about during that time was about conditioning and behavioralism. And uh, I have various agreements and disagreements with, with that, mostly disagreements with it, uh, Skinner and his work was um, was very much about treating people just like animals and um, breaking them and this kind of thing. Very, very kind of, uh, uh, well, I mean, Skinner wasn't necessarily trying to break people, but he did stick his own daughter in a box. And I thought that was a bit odd. He had this Skinner box thing. It was sort of this observation, testing and manipulation thing. And I didn't really dig that too much. I look back on that and go, mm, I don't really think so. 
And behavioralism was trying to, was making, was definitely over-promising and under-delivering in terms of being, of making claims about how you could train people to do anything. You know, you give me the, give me somebody and and I'll create the circumstances that will turn them into whatever I want to turn them into. This was kind of the attitude of both the military and the science uh, around behavioralism. And, uh, and, And that's how it got funding and that's how it got a lot of work. And research, and it wasn't really great stuff because it's not true. You can't just take anybody, stick them through a mill, uh, whether it's abusive, torturous mill, or whether it's a whole pleasure and hedonistic mill. Either way, you can't just one size fits all everybody through anything and expect that you're always going to get the same result. People don't work that way. We are infinitely more complicated than that. So behavioralism as was making promises that it really couldn't deliver on. And that unfortunately resulted in some kind of wrongheaded thinking back then where you got, you know, this Manchurian candidate brainwashing kind of idea that you could put people through a process and they would be forever changed and forever their loyalties and allegiances would be different and things like this. And, and that's just not true. That's not we are we are far sturdier stock than that. Uh, and if you look to Holocaust survivors or war survivors or refugees and human trafficking survivors and stuff, you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Yes, there's shell shock, there's PTSD, there's complex PTSD. There are definitely, you know, consequences to abuse. But the fact is that our, our brains are incredibly tough instruments and can deal with incredible shocks and still keep going. And can keep going in such a way that with elasticity, with the, with the plasticity of, of the neural connections in our brain, we can learn and unlearn and relearn all kinds of stuff all through our lives. And that's kind of the reality of the brain. It's not a fixed mechanism that you, you know, plug circuits into and run it like a machine. But that was the thinking back then when Huxley and Hubbard were formulating their ideas. And Hubbard talks about the human uh, brain or the mind as a computer, makes direct analogies to that. That was an extremely common and popular way of thinking about the mind and the brain back then. And it was just wrong. I mean, it was just part of the developmental evolution of figuring things out, but it was wrong. (laughs) And so, you know, so the conclusions drawn from that can be a bit off too. Now, that's, I, I, do all that. I say all that with such with such conviction and certainty because this business of you know raising babies and these casts to be conditioned to you know okay you're going to hate a book and therefore you're not going to learn stuff you know obviously that doesn't work because how many people read books these days not as many and yet you still have the internet you still have access to knowledge and information and of course in the course of living our lives we need information you've got to learn or you're just going to die so you know so this idea that you're going to condition people to hate books and therefore they're going to hate knowledge and they're not going to learn anything it's just it's it's simpleton is really what it is you see and it's based in this old mode of psychology where they kind of thought that that's what you could get away with. You could do that to people and, and get away with it. And you can't, and it doesn't work that way. So, so Hubbard might have, might have certainly thought uh, around that line. But see, Hubbard's, Hubbard's spin in 1950 was, okay, here's the state of psychology, and here's behavioralism, and here's lobotomies, and here's psychiatry, and here's all this awful stuff they're doing. Well, I've got something that's way better than that. It's cheaper, it's easier, it's faster, and it actually works. And it's none of that stuff. It's better 
right? And it's Dianetics. And, and so Dianetics is presented as this thing that is very much not any of that. So, so Hubbard was kind of having his cake and eating it too, you see. He was, he was on this bandwagon of, of the mind as a computer and, you know, and this push-button thing. But Hubbard was also saying at the same time, man is not a push-button creature. He is a, you know, an immortal spiritual entity running a body. And so there, and he's got this mind and we can clear it of all these traumas and insanities and we can make it so you're not a push-button behavioralist robot, you see. That was kind of, Hubbard was trying to was trying to counter that narrative coming out of psychology while at the same time using it to his advantage to propel his book forward as, as the modern science of mental health. And that's kind of how I sort of see that that there. And I, I don't know, what do, you, what do you let me know what you think about that? But um, that's kind of my, my take on your question there, Michael. And uh, there you go. All right, everybody. So that was our show for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in and inviting me into your home. I hope that you enjoyed this show as much as I enjoyed doing it. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.